Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're moving along at a at a at a pace that uh, I just cannot go any faster. I tried to do two chapters of Acts last week, but I, I had to pause because uh, both last week's passage and this week's passage were just too much, and I didn't want to speed over them too quickly because uh, they are so helpful and encouraging. So we're in Acts chapter 12, um, and and we we just to remind us where we've been. Right, the the church, the the gospel is spreading to the Gentiles, those people outside of the uh, the Jewish nation, and of course we saw this beginning in chapters t- ten and nine and eleven, and then in eleven we saw how it spread to Antioch, and then at the end of chapter um, or chapter eleven that we saw last week, we saw how the the Gentile church was sending provisions for the Jerusalem believers by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. We, we were kind of talking about how significant that was, that the man who was once the persecutor of the church is now the provider of the church. And now we come to this very interesting account in chapter 12 that kind of seems to kind of be a blip a little bit on the radar, like suddenly we have a flashback as the gospel's advancing to the Gentiles, suddenly we jump back to the Jerusalem church. And and Luke has a lot of reasons for doing this. Uh, One of them probably is to just remind us and show us that, hey, even though the gospel is spreading, the Lord Jesus Christ is still at work and very powerful in the lives of his Jerusalem believers as well. That is one of the store, one of the lessons that we get from this. But let's just start off by reading um, the first five verses, and this will kind of help us kind of set up the scene here of Acts 12. And Luke writes this, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is God's word. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage that we see an introduction for even here, and we're reminded of your faithfulness and your your provision, even though the, the powers of the world assail your church and your people, you are strong and you are mighty to save. And I pray that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us in our boldness and strengthen us in the provisions that you have given us um, and being called your church and being called your bride and your body. We pray that you would help us now through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, here we see another King Herod intending to do evil to the church of the living God. He's intending to lay violent hands on them, right? And, and of course, we need a little bit of background here. Who was this Herod? There seems to be Herods all throughout the Bible. And believe it or not, they're not all the same man. Uh, the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus is not the same Herod here in AD 43 that is trying to kill Peter and killed James. And this was Herod Agrippa, 
Um, you could say his name was Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa II will appear again for us at the end of Acts. So this is, this is, a, this is a, a king that has only recently actually come to power. He received his kingdom while he was in Rome. He grew up in Rome and he received the kingdom in about uh, 41, AD 41 or so. And right now it's about AD 43. So he, he has just received his kingdom and he has come to Jerusalem where he lived actually throughout this time and he's been ruling over most of Israel at about this point that we're at right now. This is, he's only been around for a few years though and, and we see from history that he was a very ambitious man. He killed his father. Uh, he did lots of things. He, he, he racked up a lot of debts as well while he was in Rome growing up and so he was, you could say, kind of on shaky ground with the Roman government. And, and they, were, they were willing to get rid of him if he messed up. So Herod has a lot of motivation here, a little, a little bit of background help here to help us maybe understand what's going on. He had a motivation for keeping uh, Judea, the, the province that he was over, peaceful. If Rome heard that they were riding in Jerusalem again, they would kick out Herod. Yeah, similar motivations to what we see in Pilate and probably every other uh, leader that ever was over Israel as well. But he had a reason to keep the, the Jerusalem, or keep, to keep Jerusalem peaceful. And that's probably what we see here. He's, he's doing things. He's, he's killing James, the brother of John, and he, he is waiting to see what the effect is going to be. And when he sees that it pleases the Jews, he goes on to arrest Peter as well, because what he wants is he wants to maintain power, and he maintains power by keeping the Jews happy. Matter of fact, history also tells us that he was a very Jewish king. Uh, actually, the Jews were really pleased with this Herod. They really liked him a lot. He, uh, he sacrificed every possible sacrifice. He followed every bit, the law that he could. He, he really pleased the Jews a lot, and they actually liked him, which is ironic because he was a foreign king that came from Rome, of all things, and they welcomed him, and they received him, and they embraced him almost as their king. He was the most liked Herod of all the Herods, probably, and this is ironic because they rejected the man who actually was uh, an Israelite, actually was uh, from their own land, and chose a king uh, that was from a foreign land. That's who the Israelites were, though. Um, and his actions here, as we see, are, are intentionally timed as well. He, he, he chooses to move on Peter right after Passover, which was the biggest, the biggest national feast that the, the Jews celebrated in these days. And, and notice, he doesn't want to do it during the Passover. He wants to do it after the Passover, so as not to ruffle any of their feathers, but also at the same time to do it while the most pious Jews are in Jerusalem. So he, he really will create a lot of popularity by taking out Peter. Peter, someone who would have been hated by the loyalist Jews, uh, he would have created a lot of popularity for himself. Um, and and, and just, just to give you a little bit more on him, you, you see what he's doing here. He's persecuting the church. He kills James, the brother of John. We don't know James very well. This is a different James than the James who wrote the letter of James. That James we see later on in Acts 15 is the leader of the church and uh, the brother of Jesus himself. This is James who is the brother of John. This is one of the, the brother fishermen that Jesus called very early on in his ministry. If you look at Matthew 4, you'll see this James. And actually, Jesus tells this James that he will suffer for following him. 
Um, that's who Herod kills, and he kills him with a sword, which is probably referring to the act of beheading someone. And probably Herod did this because he didn't want to, maybe he wanted to please the Jews in some way because Jews reserved beheading for the most serious of criminals who they wanted to designate as apostates because they believed if you behead someone, they can't be resurrected into the eternal kingdom. That was what they thought. So maybe that's perhaps what's going on here when Herod kills him with a sword. And we also see here that he arrests Peter as well. So we've got two major leaders. Uh, James was of Jesus' inner circle along with John and Peter. And so King Herod not only kills James, he also arrests Peter as well. So it seems as though Herod is trying to round up the leaders of the church to really cause the church in Jerusalem to scatter and be ruined. And this is the setup we have. It's it's, it's, it's a bit like, like a boxing tournament. Like you have, you've got a boxer in this corner, and you've got a boxer in this corner, and the man in the middle with the microphone that comes down, and, and he, he gets to yell into it. He says, tonight we have for you in the right corner over here, or the left, if you are looking at me from your angle. Uh, we have Herod Agrippa I. He's got, what does he have? He's got four squads of soldiers looking, looking out for Peter to make sure he doesn't escape. He's going to keep Peter in the, in the most... In, in the most inescapable place in all of Jerusalem. And over here, in the the right corner, we have the church. And what are they doing? They don't have any soldiers. They don't have any swords. They don't have anything. All they have is prayer. So here it is. And, and we're now, now we as Bible readers, though, we're, we're, we're used to this sort of thing, right? We've seen this all the time. God seems to intentionally set up uh, very strong opponents versus very weak ones because he wants to show his glory in his people. So here, here we have, it's kind of a, a setup of a big fight. And it's just like Pharaoh of old who, who had all this power that God got glory over. So we have a very similar situation. Situation here, but it starts with the church at its lowest, Peter at his lowest point in prison, with four squads of soldiers, and, and we're 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 left here to think and sit and say who is going to win this battle. So I'm going to just set up the whole entire story of this chapter as a series of unexpected events. A series of unexpected events. There's three unexpected events. It's almost like Luke is writing intentionally with an ironic pen because he wants us to see a series of unexpected contrasting situations. What's the first unexpected situation? First, we have an unexpected sequel. So for some of you who have been here from the beginning, you remember in Acts 5 how Peter and John and the apostles were all put into a public prison. And what happened? They escaped. And it was very embarrassing for the Jerusalem leaders. And and here we have Peter in prison again. But this time, but this time it seems as though the the people that are uh, putting Peter in prison have learned their mistakes from last time. They're going to make Peter's prison extra secure. There is there is not to be a sequel. There is not going to be a great escape too. As great as that movie is, Hare is going to make sure. The last time was the only time that Peter escapes. And, and we're, we're meant to be impressed with the security of Herod's prison here. We see in verse 4 uh, that he is in prison and he is 
being watched over by four squads of soldiers. A squad would be about four men. So you have a total of 16 guards totally dedicated to keeping Peter in prison. And of course, what would this mean? It probably is referring to the fact that they, they would have this shift that they could take throughout the night. Every watch, every three hours or four hours, a new squad of soldiers could take over and watch Peter. So everybody would be super alert. And in verse 6, we see the continuation of Peter's experience in Herod's supermax, you could say. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, the night before Peter was to be killed... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Here again we see kind of uh, kind of a over over the top it's an overkill on protection, right? Usually a prisoner just needs to be thrown in jail or usually a prisoner just needs one chain. But here they have Peter chained with two chains. Probably what's going on there is Peter has a chain on this arm and on this arm, and this arm is connected to this soldier, and this arm is connected to that soldier, and they're both asleep next to him. And then there's two soldiers out by the gate, right? So here's the kind of philosophy behind this security system, right? Yeah, maybe Peter can bribe one soldier, but can he bribe two? And can Peter bribe four soldiers all at once? Because... You need to remember that a Roman soldier, he he had a death sentence if he let a prisoner escape. So these soldiers were well motivated to keep uh, uh, Peter in prison. That's probably why they put two chains on him. So nobody could take Peter unless they cut him in half. Maybe that was the idea behind the two chains. Whatever it is, Peter is in the most secure position that Herod can put him. And perhaps here he's even in the Tower of Antonia, which is not to be confused with Antoni Bray, but the Tower of Antonia, which is in the northwest corner of the temple. It was the strongest place of Roman power in the city of Jerusalem. It's where the Roman soldiers stayed, and it was right there where all the action always happened near the temple. And and basically, I, I just see in this story all the expectations, right? There is no way Peter is going to escape us. He may escape those Jerusalem guards, those Jewish guards in Acts 5, but he is not going to escape the might and the strength of Rome. They are prepared for everything. They're prepared for someone to break in, and they're prepared for someone to try to break out. Peter is not escaping them. But notice, Notice how easy it is for Peter to escape. Because look here in verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I, I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we see there in verse 11, right? We see there that the, the Jewish people were expecting Peter to be killed. We see there that, the, that Herod's people were expecting Peter to be killed. But we also see this is an unexpected escape because Peter himself wasn't really expecting to escape. We get that picture just from the posture in which we find Peter himself. He is asleep. All of his clothes are off. He's not ready to go. He's not looking for an escape. He doesn't seem to be expecting anything. If, if I was going to be broken out of prison and I knew it, I think I'd be awake for it, right? But here we see him sleeping. And, and notice, once again, how easily his escape comes about. The angel comes in, says, Twang, you're free. Uh, I'm sure that noise wasn't a part of it. But his chains just fall off simply and easily. And he easily passes through multiple gates, past multiple guards that suddenly are being induced with this sovereign slumber. And finally, he, he doesn't even realize what's happening until about verse 11 when he is completely out in the street. So we see, we see no one is expecting a sequel to Acts chapter 5 here. And Peter himself is also not expecting this. But I, I see a, a wonderful little nugget of application here in these first 11 verses. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Peter has been doing all night long before he is about to be killed. He is sleeping. Verse 6 shows that, sleeping. Matter of fact, the verb choice there or indicates something that is continually happening. He is, not, he is not waking up periodically from discomfort. He is not waking up with fear. He is not unable to go to sleep because of anxiety. He is continually asleep. He's having the best night of sleep in his entire life, we're meant to think almost, because we, this is the only time we ever see Peter sleeping. And it's interesting, he is sleeping so deeply that the angel has to strike him with a stick. I don't know about you, but I'm a light sleeper. All you have to do is come into my room, flip on the light, and I am wide awake and grumpy. Right? But the angel has to strike him. And a very interesting verb choice. Again, strike is the same word that is used in this very same chapter when someone gets killed. It seems as though the angel has to hit Peter relatively hard. He is having the best sleep of his night, uh, or of his life. He is sleeping like a baby. And, of course, we have two observations to make here, right? He's not necessarily expecting to escape. That's not what gives him, gives him this freedom of sleep. And he's also not necessarily doomed by death either. That's, that's, there's, there's something going on here, something very extraordinary, even more extraordinary than maybe we would ever think we could experience if we were in Peter's situation. Because if you, if you think about it, Peter was, what was he expecting? From, from all hints that we have here, he was expecting in the morning to be dragged out in front of the, 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 Jew, the Jerusalem Jews there and be killed. Maybe he'd be given some sort of a trial, but the, the result would be that he would be killed. Maybe in the same way that James was killed with beheading, which he probably heard about or witnessed. 
But it might very well be that he was expecting to die in a way very similar to the way Jesus died, because he had received this prediction from Jesus himself about how he would die. In John 21, 18, Jesus tells him this, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not wish to go. And of course, Jesus there is uh, referring to stretching out the hands, which is kind of a, a phrase used of crucifixion. That was the kind of death that Peter was expecting. And, and his, his whole life would have been lived knowing at the end of all this, I am expecting to have someone else dress me and, and, and drag me to somewhere that I do not want to go to an end that's going to be uncomfortable and painful just like the Lord Jesus's was to one extent or another. I am expecting to die by crucifixion. That's the kind of death that was hanging over Peter's life. And yet he can sleep like this. Now, you're saying, well, maybe he thought this isn't the time. Maybe. But still, notice, it sure is a fearful situation, and he's not expecting to, be a, to find escape here. So I would conclude he was expecting in the morning to be crucified by the Romans. And yet, and yet he could sleep. By the way, maybe that is a little side, little side comment here. Maybe that's the reason why the angel goes to such emphasis to say, dress yourself. Maybe the angel was saying, this is not your time to die yet. Your time will come when somebody else will dress you. But just notice, notice, this is what he would have been expecting. And yet he could sleep in the shadow of death with such peace. What is it about Peter? What did Peter have that enabled him to sleep so soundly? Well, I'll tell you, Uh, Peter's death was not the only thing that Jesus told Peter about. Peter had other promises in his head, maybe. Matter of fact, I think Luke wants us to think about this, because in in Luke's gospel, in, in the gospel of Luke, we see Jesus speak to the apostles and the disciples and we, we, we hear him predict for them all of the persecution they're going to encounter. Like in Luke twenty one sixteen, Jesus says this to his disciples, You will be delivered even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Notice that, well, this is what Peter's expecting, right? He's expecting to suffer as a Christian, and maybe even to suffer to the extent of death. Jesus does not promise his disciples an easy life, a, a, a freedom. A, he does not promise them that you will be released every time. No, if you look at the promises of Jesus to his disciples, Uh, far and beyond release we see a promise of suffering and death you will be hated that's what you should expect you shouldn't expect to be freed but notice and I'll keep reading here even though though that even though Jesus promises that that we will be killed for following him he also gives us other promises as well like in Luke 21 18 Even though you will be put to death and you will be hated for my name's sake, verse 18 says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. Oh, what is it? In one minute, you say, I'm going to be hated and die. And then you say, but not a hair of my head will perish. 
How can those be both true at the same time? Jesus is probably referring here to our spiritual life and the life we have to hope in beyond this life. And basically what Jesus is saying here is, even though they kill you, they still cannot touch you. You will still endure till the end. You still will, by your endurance, he says in verse 19 of Luke 21, gain your life. And why, why can you do all of this? Why can you encounter death and hatred with such confidence and boldness that not a hair of your head will be touched? Well, it's because of what Jesus says right before this passage in Luke, in Luke 21. He says, settle in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you are to answer when all of this happens. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to understand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Notice what's supposed to secure and give the disciples peace. It's that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will give them wisdom for that moment to endure faithfully. And of course, this reminds us of of Luke chapter 12, where Jesus makes a similar promise. And this promise speaks of the Holy Spirit that will be with us. And of course, we see Jesus as the giver of the Holy Spirit, right? Those who have the Holy Spirit, all to say, those who have the Holy Spirit do not necessarily have a promise of an easy life or a release every time, but they have a promise of spiritual strength to endure, even the hardest times. And those with the Spirit of God can encounter some of the most terrifying moments conceivable in this life and sleep like a baby. In fact, this also reminds us of 2 Corinthians. And I've been reading 2 Corinthians a lot, so I'm constantly thinking of this. But 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice the people that have the Spirit of God in their life can see, can have perspective, even in difficult affliction. Actually, their perspective is is so great that they see affliction as preparing them for a greater glory ahead. Affliction give me more joy in the things that I cannot see in the future. Uh, that, that hope, that eternal hope that I have. And, and he even goes on to say in, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed... By putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, but being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has, notice this, given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The believers have the Spirit of God in their life that gives them a perspective in all trials, in the hardest of nights, in the most difficult of circumstances, where they could even sleep and rest in the sovereignty of God. That is the picture that we see here back in in Acts chapter 12. The believer that knows their God, that has the Spirit of God, can endure the hardest situations. As a matter of fact, we see 
that, that they can even experience the threat of being killed because they know that in Jesus Christ nothing can touch them. As a matter of fact, they can even increase in joy as, as the people in this world and in this life fight against them. And then they can sleep like a baby in the sovereignty and in the promises of God's strength. That's who a believer is. And that's who Peter is in prison. Even when we face unexpected circumstances or, or certain judgment, if we are in Christ, if we are trusting in Christ, we can have confidence. And this leads us to our next unexpected event. We call this an unexpected doorbell. Now, I want to be careful to explain to you, they didn't have doorbells back then, but uh, I thought it was worth a shot. Uh, so an unexpected doorbell. We see here Peter appears to the Jerusalem church while they are in their prayer meeting. And this, in my mind, is where it gets particularly funny. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 12 of Acts. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, more than likely where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, ah, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Notice irony here? Well, Peter has no trouble getting out of the greatest prison that the Roman muscle could buy. He seems to have incredible trouble getting in to the doors of the church's prayer meeting. Now, I think that should encourage you, right? And once again, we see this idea of God's sovereignty kind of hinted at here, maybe, right? When you are in the church of Jesus Christ, you are in the safest place imaginable because the Lord Jesus Christ will not let anyone enter that he does not ordain. And he will not get, let anything enter your life that he does not give you strength to endure. But that's just kind of a, a side application. It is mainly humorous. Peter cannot get in. And this servant girl has more faith or more expectation than any of these people in this prayer meeting. And that is also very ironic, because the church at this very moment is praying for Peter. And when Peter shows up at their door, uh, they can't believe it. Now, what do we make of this? Well, maybe they were praying for something like strength, endurance, boldness, one of these things, something that they would expect, but they weren't expecting this. I don't know what to make of it, except simply being sweetly encouraged by the fact, by the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ's power is greater than my prayers. And sometimes he answers my prayers above and beyond what I am expecting. Uh, but it is very interesting. Notice they, they are willing to accept any explanation of Peter being at their door, even the fact that an angel that looks like Peter is at their door then actually believe that Peter has escaped. This is an encouragement to us. 
about the Lord's sovereignty, his protection, but also his power and his, his strength that's even beyond and above our prayers. And then we see kind of this, this episode, and this perhaps is one of the reasons why um, Luke gives us this account in Acts. He wants to tell us what happened to Peter. Peter departs and goes to another place. And nobody knows where that is. I am convinced that it's, it is Antioch where, where Peter goes. He meets Paul and they minister together. And we see the account in Galatians 2 of Peter eating with Gentiles until some men from Jerusalem show up. And then Peter gets cold feet and tries to separate. And then Peter, and then Peter gets it laid on to him by Paul. But that's another story for another time in Galatians chapter 2. But this is all just to say God is sovereign. God's protecting his church. The Lord Jesus Christ is still Lord even in Jerusalem, even though the gospel's gone out. The Lord Jesus Christ is powerful in protecting and nourishing and strengthening his own church. And this leads us to our final scene of, of an unexpected event. We see an unexpected judgment. And, and you could say this humorously, like, meanwhile, back at the uh, tower back in the prison cell. Can you imagine? There are some scenes that I just want to see. I just want to see what they look like. But can you imagine waking up and having, and, and you being the guard, laying down with a chain on your wrist, that when you went to bed, it was chained to Peter, and now you wake up and Peter is gone. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Of course, there was no little disturbance in, in, in verse 18. That's Luke's way of saying there was a great disturbance in the prison cell that morning when they realized what had happened. Of course, Herod got very mad, and we see that uh, he searches the guards in verse 19, and when he did not find Peter or did not like their explanation, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And once again, we see the cost of losing a prisoner was great. You received the prisoner's death sentence, in a word. And so this is actually a great apologetic, right? How else can you explain the fact that Peter got out of prison than the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed risen? But it seems as though Herod doesn't want to think about this idea. He simply wants to deal with the problem, so he kills the guards. And then he goes to um, the people of Tyre and Sidon, we see in verse 20. And he was angry at them for some reason that we're not told, and they were disturbed by this because they depended on Herod's land to give them food. And now, once again, we must remember this probably wasn't the great famine, but this was a time of great famine. And they were preparing for another famine. So these people in Tyre and Sidon, verse 20, want to get Herod on their side. So we see in verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, what a name, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So just to, to remind us, we have a, an, amazing, an amazing act just happened in Jerusalem. Peter has escaped from prison, but Herod seems to cover over that. But, but Herod cannot escape the sovereign power and judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we see here. And we even know when this was. This was AD probably 40 four or so, because that is when we have other historical accounts that actually relate this same situation. What's about to happen is so dramatic that it cannot be lost to history. And of course, this is the death of Jesus Christ. 
verse 21 and 22 kind of, well, 22 gives us the reason. Verse 22, the people were shouting the voice of God and not of a man. And immediately in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him, same word, because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last once again, if you were to read forward in Acts to Acts 14, you would see um, accepting the praises of people that you are like God is a very dangerous thing. The apostles are said to be gods in chapter 14 of Acts, and they say, no, no, we're just men. But here we see the inner heart of Herod come out. He is not religious. He is not a God-fearer like the Jews think he is. He thinks he deserves their praise And because he did not rebuke them, immediately an angel strikes him down. Uh, Josephus, one of those historians that recounts this event, says he was wearing a robe that was interwoven with strands of silver. So in the morning light, he seemed to sparkle and glow like a deity. And the people, when they heard his great speech... And they saw the way he he brightly shone. They praised him and wanted to worship him. Now, maybe their motives are confused as well, but that's what we see. And and Josephus also says that immediately he was he was struck by this problem of inner intestinal worms. Now, actually, medical doctors say there there are a lot of evidences of people that died of worms, which basically made a a tight bundle in your gut and then instantly stopped um, your ability to properly digest or do things like that, and it led to a slow and painful death. And Josephus himself will say, Herod died five days later in great pain. And of course, this this could be what is happening here. Luke kind of recounts it as though he died instantly, but that could that could be the same thing that he's talking about. Luke wants to count that his death was by the hand of God because he thought he was greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, once again, we return to the beginning of our story, right? It's Herod in this corner, and it's the church in this corner. But the Lord Jesus Christ, we see, is greater and more powerful than the strongest military power available at that time. And this provides us like an application and and a comfort, you could say. God's power and God's sovereignty are a great comfort to the people of God. Because to the believer, God is constantly, constantly, constantly on purpose. God's constantly pursuing his purpose and you never have to fear regardless of what's happening in your life, regardless of where you are sleeping that night or where you aren't sleeping that night. He is always working for his purpose. And this also provides obviously a a bit of a unencouraging application to the unbeliever, right? The Lord is always a threat regardless of where you are, regardless of, of how powerful you feel or how glorious your situation appears to be. You are never outside of his hand of judgment either. The Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign everywhere. And of course, this leads us to kind of some conclusions that I want to just make. And and conclusions based on kind of the story that we've just seen. Uh, Three contrasts that we see in this story that help us to think about our God. First off, I want to note to you the contrast of deathbeds. Now, of course, this is depending on Josephus' account that 
that Herod died five days after in his bed in intense pain. But just, but just notice the ending or the perceived ending of both of these figures, right? Well, Peter can sleep in the shadow of death. Herod has no peace in the hour of his death. There, there is a contrast here. And notice also the contrast of weaponry that we see in this story. Herod can wield the full force of his strength given to him by Rome. And all the church has is prayer. Weak prayer at that. Unbelieving prayer at that. Yet who is stronger? The one with Jesus pursuing his purpose. And this leads us to our third contrast. We could say a contrast of reach. Remember, once again, the Acts recount the continued acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is outside of his reach. Nothing is outside of his control. Things will go as he intends. And that's what Luke wants us to see. Remember, Acts 12 is nothing more than a blip on the radar. A small little parenthesis in history, right? We're meant to see this in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Paul and and Barnabas, or, or then known as Saul, take the offering gathered together by the Gentile church, and they're bringing it to the Jerusalem church. And then we see all of this happen in chapter 12, and then we get to verse 24, as if nothing with Herod happens, and we see, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And then verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark, who we were introduced to in this story. Right? This whole story of Herod, the greatest threat to this moment that the church had faced, is really just a blip on the screen, a parenthesis in church history. A oh yeah, there was this man named Herod. He died of worms. He tried to he tried to exalt himself above the Lord Jesus Christ, and he perished with certain judgment. This is history to the church, and this is what we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ: that everything goes according to plan. We are at most at peace when we are in His purposes. We can sleep with peace even in the most difficult of situations, because the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. That's what we see. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for your incredible mercy to us, and we thank you for the promise that you give to believers. It's not just to apostles. It's not just to the greatest ones. It's to all those who have your spirit as a guarantee that we can rest in even the most difficult of situations because of the spirit that you have given to us. The spirit of boldness, the spirit of witness, and the spirit of guarantee. We thank you for all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.